So again, welcome, and let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather and open the scriptures together. Help us uh, learn, study, and care about what you've said, and help us to encourage one another to love and good works. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me go to the slide that we were on. Yeah, I can read that. Okay, now what we're talking about recently, it was a few weeks ago when I was doing Sunday school, and thank you, Eric, for the excellent material you've been presenting on eschatology. Uh, Acts 20, 30, and from among your own selves, men will arise uh, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So right now we're on the theme of internal wolves. The external wolves attack the church from the outside. The internal arise from apparently within the church, but yet they have a totally different agenda than what is God's intent for the church and the teachings of the church. One of the things that we learn about internal woes is that they have lots of different ways of leading people astray. You have some proclivity. The, uh, these sort of woes will have a version of Christianity for you that will appeal to you. You might be a legalist and a lawgiver. They'll have something for you or some version of it. You might be a libertine. They'll have that as well. Whatever schism or ism that you can think of, there's a version of it. And so what we need to do in order to be protected against the wolves is to be lifelong students of Scripture from our conversion on and to do the exegetical work to find out what the Scripture says and not just go by what you've heard or what people typically say or what you find in the most popular book on the bestsellers list on christianbooks.com or whatever, um, because most of that is not that great. And we've written reviews of, of many of them. It seems that Eric has been pointing this out in his series on eschatology, and I, I point that out in our the material that we've been dealing with and Jessica and I are, are dealing with it on the New Apostolic Reformation. One of the things that is typical, and that's why we need to get this right, what's typical is alluding to scriptures, assuming a lot of things, and moving on with having cited a proof text and not doing the exegetical work that's necessary to prove that you actually understand the text. Okay? And I loved Eric's story about his... Uh, well, I didn't love the fact you got injured, Eric. I don't mean that. But I, I know what it's like to study because I can't do anything else. That happened to me a lot. Got a whole book written one time because of that. Um, but Eric was watching because he's interested in eschatology, people's YouTube videos on it. 
and notice almost everybody got things wrong. And why, how? Because of lack of exegesis. Superficially citing something and then carrying on with it. Right now I'm reading a book at the request of a friend and a professor who was a professor in Japan, Eric and I met in Canada, and he wants the book to be critiqued, and he was asked me if I'd do it, and because it, I think it'll be helpful, I'm going to do so. They cite Matthew 28, and disciple the nations means make a nice culture out there for everybody to enjoy this sort of Christian. And assuming that's what Matthew meant, without ever doing one lick of exegetical work out of Matthew 28 to show what Matthew meant. So that's just typical. I would say it's the rule in popular Christianity. Cite a verse that sounds like something, assume that everybody will have the same idea, and then go on with your agenda. Now, what the, the alternative... Uh, the alternative is to do the hard work of going to primary sources, and primary source is not what somebody wrote about it that's also on a popular level. Primary source goes into the details in the fundamentals of exegesis so that you can show you know the text, you know what the debates have been about the text, and you can... Uh, be conversant on those issues and present your own case with biblical data and back it up and then be ready to go into the arena of public debate with it and not be ashamed because somebody's going to come along and see you didn't do your homework. Does that make sense? Now, some people say, well, you're just uh, an egghead or uh, an elitist or whatever. No, this isn't Elitism. This is what was happening in the New Testament. Paul was writing to every Christian, not just certain ones that had come from some uh, rabbinical school. He expected all Christians to be able to understand the scriptures, process technical debate issues which Paul give, gives, and make application to it. So we need to equip the saints for the work of the ministry means delving into these things because what you don't do and what you don't know, the false teachers will use to build a big stick to beat you with and fill you with load of guilt for being a pathetic Christian because you don't see things their way. So you need to be able to go into the arena of public debate and be able to defend your position. And that's literally, that's kind of what, how Eric and I met each other and what we're doing. He's working on eschatology. I'm working on defining the church. What do the false teachings have in common? They're superficial. They're based on stories that people have. I did this and I did that. This is happening here. This is happening there. Here's our proof text and go on. And what's the alternative? Well, we had it in Sunday school last week. Go into the very details of the proof text that they're using and see what it means. Let me give you a quick illustration. We were going through Acts. When we were in Acts 17, Paul debated the most brilliant philosophers 
in the known world at that time gathered at Athens. This is where they went. And he dealt with it and preached the gospel to them. Now, what do people get from that? Well, I've heard most of my Christian life, people say Paul failed in Athens. So instead he went, went out and started doing signs and wonders. And people will keep teaching that. And what that proves is that whoever says that has no concern whatsoever for Luke's meaning. Luke did not portray Acts 17 as a failure. He portrayed it as an important speech that Paul gave to an important audience, and the number of converts doesn't, converts doesn't prove success or failure. Some were converted. And when you look at Luke, some of the key converts uh, ended up be facilitating the growth of the church, such as Lydia and so on. So do the work. I will debate anybody who wants to tell me they can prove Luke intended to portray Paul as failing at Athens. I'll debate anybody anywhere on that because I know they're wrong and they can't defend it. But they don't debate. They just stay in their thing say, well, anybody debates is just dividing the church, so I won't do it. So that's what the NAR does. So here we go. That's what wolves look like. We're right because we have a lot of followers and we're us. And those scholars are just eggheads that don't know what they're talking about. Go ahead. Everything, everything you said is certainly valid. But there's one other aspect, too. You're talking about looking at uh, being injured and looking at YouTube and all those things. I think all the wolves and antichrists seem to have gone to a charm school. And uh, you're <laughs> charmed by them. Oh, they're oh, wonderful yeah. people. Oh, yeah. That charm school is a good... I, I affirm what you say, and uh, if there's any charm in me, it's because of my wife. <laughs> and, and I should say, the, the Lord using providence, including beat off some of the rough edges and so on. Anyhow, let's, good point. Go to charm school. Robert Schuller, now that shows how old I am. He's smiling, Robert Schuller, feeding people damnable lies. Paul wrote to Timothy at Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. And so that's what we were looking at. Let me see what I have on this next slide. What do you know? I have it right here. And then we're going to do a look at 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 3. And I do point out here 1 John 2, 19. Ephesus turns out to be one of the key places where we learn about the church. And that's kind of the point of this slide. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, according to his own testimony, went on to the Greek peninsula, comes back to Miletus, calls for the Ephesian elders, and there presents this material in Acts 20, which is fundamental to the, the meaning of the church the leadership of the church, the teachings of the church, the priorities of the church. This is inescapable. Furthermore, at a future time, after Paul's in prison, he writes to Timothy, who's in Ephesus. And he gives more details. Um, and according to um, 
what we know about John and certainly in Revelation letters to the church, Ephesus is a key place all the way to the first, later in the first century. Not that Ephesus is the only place that matters, but that's because of the situation ends up being where we learn a lot about the church. The book of Ephesians gives us some of the most focused material about the nature of the church and the ministries of the church. So that's why we're here. This is where we learn the details. And so let's go to Timothy, who also was at Ephesus. And what this shows, by the way, is that what Paul predicted in Acts 20 came to pass. After Paul's gone from that site and he's off, I believe, in prison. Is it Timothy prison epistles? That's right. Um, what he said happened from, from their own selves arose false teachers and so therefore Timothy is there facing what happened and that, that will show you something else by the way in passing let me make this point how do you get better teaching for three years than from the apostle Paul can you think of somebody who would be well, it could have been Peter or John or someone, but you have apostle, an apostle appointed by Christ himself, taught by Christ himself, teaching for three years at Ephesus. Did that make it so they were Teflon in regard to false teaching? No. No one's Teflon. They didn't have Teflon back then. No one is immune because we're still not perfected. We're still prone to romanticism or uh, smooth talkers, nice sounding ideas, certain things that we'd like to be a certain way. And the protection that God gave us is his word, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, who Jesus said he's sending and a father would send in my name. He will lead you to the truth. The same Holy Spirit who indwells Everyone who's born of God is the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of Scripture. And so Luther wasn't wrong when he said the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. The organized church of Rome would say the Holy Spirit comes through the church and all the processes. To just show up and do what we tell you, that's what you'll be okay. If you ever... Christian has direct access to the word of God and it's trained you have access to the very words of the spirit of God and if we can understand who use human authors with their own unique characteristics to teach and it's the truth and so authorial intent has to rule our hermeneutic the only person's meaning that matters is the authors, not the reader. So, so remain on at Ephesus, as Paul's in Rome in prison, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctors. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And uh, it's a word for doctrine, didaskale. Here it is, hetero didaskale, teaches others, the other doctrines that's not according to the faith once for all handed down to the saints 
So the false teachers did arise. Timothy's supposed to instruct them not to teach strange doctrines. Right there, right there. Pay attention in red. When we first, in the 80s, started teaching verse by verse and correcting popular teachings, we were told by many people who blackballed us and put us on a blacklist so that uh, no more preaching, no more honoraria, we don't want you. What, what did we do that got us on the outs? We corrected error. Not tolerable. You cannot correct anybody. Because when you do, you grieve the Holy Spirit. So how is using sound doctrine revealed by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to the church to correct error and false teachers grieving the Spirit? Well, the answer from the leaders that were done with us is that you're dividing the body of Christ. Now, think about the logic of that in the context of 1 Timothy 1, 3b through 5 here. Timothy was at Ephesus. He was there teaching the church at Ephesus. The ones teaching the strange doctrines were also in the church of Ephesus from among your own selves. Remember that? So by nature, it'll always be the case is that people from within the church teaching strange doctrines corrected by someone else in the church will divide. It'll divide between truth and error. The, the, the milieu of the 80s was we're going to have this grand movement and we're going to do all these glorious things, but we got to have unity to make it happen. In order to have unity, don't correct any error. It'll all work out. That is directly opposed to what we're told here. So we can choose. We're going to do what God said and correct strange doctrine. That doesn't mean everyone trying to correct they may maybe the one trying to do the correction is wrong. That's why we need the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. That's why Eric and I present what we have to teach to you, and we listen to other readings if there, if there's better ones, because we're not. No one is right just because they have a pulpit in front of them. So, what's the strange doctrine? Heterodoxy. So what are some of these things? Not to pay attention to Miz. Miz is muthos. Miz were very popular in uh, the ancient world. Stories about gods and demigods. Things that may or may not happen. Uncertain historical veracity. Isn't this pertinent to what we're dealing with today? Miz. Uh, in our podcast about the NAR. It's amazing, the Miz. What sort of Miz am I talking about? In order to be somebody important, you have to have stories. And the stories have to be supernatural. And if you literally, I think, didn't we just do this or are we going to do it? We did it. Jessica, we covered this, visits to heaven. If you haven't visited heaven, you have no credibility in their movement. Because we heard, we heard 
video after video, story after story of the teachers that visited heaven. And then we went through Paul's discussion about that in first, Second Corinthians 12 and showed that Paul was dealing with people in his day who claimed to have visited heaven. And Paul said, well, if you're going to, this is full speech. We're going to go by that. Then I know a man, whether in the body or not, and it was Paul. He talked to him about himself, but I'm not going to boast about that. But they were. They're doing the very same thing Paul's critics did, and Paul rebuked them. And they're doing it today, and every the crowd, you can hear the crowd, yay, wow, look at this. Dear ones, this is insidious. It's, it's saying to the Holy Spirit, who inspired the scriptures, nuts to you, we won't listen. We have our own Holy Spirit. Paul said, if you received a spirit, if you receive a spirit that you did not receive, you bear with that, but you won't bear with Paul. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, actually, Paul is agreeing with Jesus Christ, too, because in, uh, I'm thinking of Matthew 13, you know, verse 24 on the, the wheat and the tares, and that, you know, for, yeah. and, and this is where we, I don't know if I... I don't know if I have a pipeline directly besides the scriptures, but God, for whatever reason, allows the tares to be mingled in, and that's just the way it's going to be. Now, my own opinion is that this gives us every motivation and reason to not only listen to good teaching, but also to search the scriptures ourselves. Yeah, isn't the field the world in that one? Okay, so one of the things, let me, we can make an application of that. The church should not be the church of the tares. Somebody wrote a book about that. What was that, Warren Smith? I can't remember. Somebody wrote a book about the church of the tares. The tares should be the exception. The world's full of it. And a Christianized society is full of tares because you assume everything's Christian. Um, so the tares coexist with Christians in the world um, until the end. So uh, this would tell us that we can't expect the secular government to promote a valid version of Christianity. The world is full of both. And we can't go out with the sword and kill every terror. We can't do that. It's not right. Because some terror might be a Christian at some point. They might be converted. Does that make sense? Jessica, do you want to comment based on any feedback we got from our discussions on the NAR? Well, kind of going with that is because they've accepted so much strange doctrine, they do have a church of the tares. But to them, that is their definition of the church. And if you're not speaking in tongues and you're not experiencing these miracles and you don't have wonders and your pastor doesn't have the great stories and he's not been to heaven, well, then are you even a Christian? They've completely redefined everything. But as you were speaking, I was also thinking that's kind of the problem with the whole seeker movement too. It's designed to create a church of the tares. Thank you. Good point. Um, now, the muthos, the mythological stories, some of the books we read for research is filled with that. Filled story after story after story. 
one person who got out of the movement and has contacted us, and I've talked to her several times, and Jessica's been in contact. I said, well, because she got out of the NAR and does, can't find in a big city a church where they, they're teaching the Bible. Cause, uh, and I said, well, what did they do when you were in the NAR church? What were their services? What exactly constituted a church service? She answered immediately, story time. Story time. I said this, and this happened. Somebody went to a meeting, and they grew a limb. That's very common, although it never really happens. Uh, Yes, go ahead. So along those lines, I've spent some Wednesday evenings sitting in a NAR church in our area. And if I were to describe their service, it starts with what I could only call like a seance, to summon the Holy Spirit. It's this low lighting, changing lights, music that kind of sets the mood, and it's very repetitive over and over. And their favorite one is a song that repeats over and over, Holy Spirit, come rest on us. Holy Spirit, come over and over until everyone's just about in a trance. And they even, I mean, they have it so defined, like this is the time where we enter, the the Holy Spirit enters, and then we have transition where the music kind of fades to the background and somebody comes up and starts praying, usually in tongues. And then it never fails. There's someone who goes up for prayer for, I mean, I sat there one night and they were praying for this young man I'd never seen there before. And he had lost a leg, some, I I don't know what happened, but and they were there commanding the Holy Spirit to make his leg regrow. And then they kind of shift away from that. And then it's story time. There was one evening where they showed a clip from The Chosen, which was a story that was not even found anywhere in Scripture, and that was the sermon for the night. So it's all experiences, signs and wonders, stories, making you feel like you're having a religious experience, but there's no gospel there. Right. Thank you. I, uh, in the 80s and 90s, the same thing was going on. People would travel to somewhere that we knew, uh, where the, like to Brownsville with Rodney Howard Brown. When you were there, and one lady we knew, no, we still know who she is. I haven't seen her for years. Said she was there for a whole week, and she thought there might be something to it. She wasn't going down there thinking it was bad. And she didn't come back saying it was bad necessarily, but I asked, did they ever mention Jesus Christ as far as who he is, his preexistence, virgin birth, miracles, atonement, resurrection, repentance for forgiveness of sins, anything like that? No, I never heard a word about it. Okay, so he had this massive worldwide promoted meeting called the Laughing Revival, and there's stories. Now, you can say I'm being unfair by equating that to Muthos, Miz. I don't think so. I think it's a valid application. It can't be verified. Where is this leg that was restored? Okay, or some, I remember some things like that coming through our group in the 70s, but it turned out to be a scam in one case. Uh, dear ones, How do you know a true work of the Spirit? He, the Spirit of truth, when he comes, 
he will testify about me. He, what did Jesus say? He will testify about me. Let me ask you this. Am I unfair in asking and suggesting that a Holy Spirit meeting where the Holy Spirit comes would be a meeting in which the people speaking by the Spirit would testify about Christ. Jesus said he will testify about me. Well, maybe that's just one thing he does. True enough, God does a lot of things. But let's just test the the idea John said, or Jesus said in John, he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will testify about me. Let's go to the, let's go to Acts chapter 2. We can look at this, that, and the other thing. But what did Peter testify about in Acts 2? Jesus, the Messiah. This is that predicted by Joel. And then he went on, testified about Messiah, proving from the Old Testament that he's the one reigning at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, verse 1. Why would the Holy Spirit come to a powerful meeting with thousands of people and not one person under the power of the Spirit would testify about Christ? Because they're not even interested. It's, yeah, it's a myth, a muthos. So last year, so 2022, in that church that I was just talking about was the year of being Spirit-led. And so their first Wednesday of 2022, they had this preacher come in and talk about being spirit-led, and then he opened, kind of did like an open mic thing, and, well, come, you know, come tell us how the Holy Spirit is, listen, or is, is leading you right now, and how are you listening to the Holy whatever, whatever. And I, I don't even sit in the sanctuary anymore. I just sit outside, and I thought, well, he asked. and so I went up there and I brought them to John and I said this is how we test the spirits and this is what is a work of the spirit that that when the Holy Spirit comes he testifies about Christ so if you are out there and you are preaching the gospel and you are teaching people who Jesus is and what he did and why they need him you are being spirit led and it's not about you should start a new business or it's not about where you should move you know if you want to know a work of the spirit Christ is being confessed and it was like crickets i mean they just really? look. but one lady came out <laughs> afterwards and said you really made me think I, i'm gonna have to think about that i have to think about oh. what you said but thank you for sharing it because you really made me think so i don't know pray for that lady but well God, thank you i hadn't totally heard that story that way thank you jessica um yeah, never, um, never lose an opportunity to testify about Christ. There are things that may or may not be from the Spirit, but one thing we know, Satan's a liar and a father of the lie. The lie is the spirit of Antichrist who's opposed to Christ. And testifying fully and truly about Christ is a work of the Spirit. There are lying sons signs and wonders as well as valid ones. I'm not saying God doesn't heal people. That'd be crazy because I'm standing here and someone got healed. Um, But that doesn't prove that I'm anything other than a recipient of undeserved grace. Testifying about Christ shows that God's at work 
in people's lives because that is the point. We'll spend eternity with Christ and when no more stories are necessary because the real thing will be there visibly <laughs> with him. We'll be with him. So, muthos. Muthos would be stories, myths. I'm not saying there's no... Sometimes you just can't know. In this book that we're critiquing, there's all kinds of stories. I don't know. But I know that when stories become the currency of a movement, in other words, the way you gain status and esteem in the eyes of your peers is to have a grander story than someone else, people are tempted to either embellish or make up stories. Otherwise, they have no standing. But I don't want to accuse someone of making up a story if I don't have evidence that they did. I've seen some who have over the years. But you're, you're planting the seeds of, I better come up with a story somehow. Otherwise, I'm nobody here. And we don't stand in uh, high esteem in one another's eyes because we have better supernatural stories. The esteem that we have in the eyes of God is that God has shown mercy to sinners. That God is merciful and forgiving and kind. That God has allowed us to be part of his family. That I like some of the old southern songs from the door of the orphanage to the house of the king. Uh, I've got some material that I've worked on in 1 Corinthians 7 and talk about status change that's more important than your role in this life. So um, that'll, I'm looking forward to preaching that. Muthos, myths, endless genealogies. Now, why would a genealogy be a sidetrack. Does anybody want to comment on that? Jewish tradition. Yeah, in, in one sense, if it's a Jewish background, which both existed in Ephesus, you'd want to prove that you were descended from somebody important. Eric, you want to comment on genealogies in that context? Yeah, um Interestingly, when I was in Israel, I'll be talking about an illustration today in my sermon from Israel. But well, don't, I don't want you to be mad. No, no, this is related. Uh, you can go ahead and do it, but if you want to save it, yeah, I it made me think of it. our bus driver. You know, the bus drivers are pretty well trained. They actually go to college good, in yeah. Israel to be a tour guide, so that they know their history and they know a lot of the Bible. You know, just at a kind of a secular level. Well, this one Jewish fellow, we kind of got to know him. He was a younger guy, probably in his uh, early 30s. And as I was standing with him, he started on different days boasting about his genealogy, that he thought he was from David. And he gave us the opportunity to tell him, you know, the Messiah already came. Your lineage doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but it made me think of that, that still today, a lot of Jews are involved with genealogies because they don't have their doctrine down. They don't know that the son of David already came. Good comment. I, I've got a the research done for the next sermon I'll preach in two weeks that seems strange when you first read it, 1 Corinthians 7 a similar idea there's neither uh, circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing okay and I'll give you a little preview our status everyone who's ever been converted there's only one kind of person born on the earth and that's lost sinners. 
descended from Adam. So everyone by default is in Adam. When you're converted by God's grace, you go from being in Adam to in Christ. All right? (laughs) Now, I'm giving away my sermon, so it's just not yours that I thwarted here. Um, And I will submit to you that that is the greatest status enhancement you'll ever have. And if you were a, I'll think of something I was, a kid on the farm shoveling manure out of the hog house into the manure spreader, and that was your role, um, that doesn't sound like a very good status. But it was later when I came to Christ. But if you, at that point, come to Christ, not too many years later I did, Shoveling that manure is meaningless. It's your job so that the hog's uh, excrement ends up fertilizing the field. Um, Now you're a child of the king. I wonder why the songs that I heard when I was a new Christian were like that. Thank God, thank God I'm a child of the king. Now they come to calling down the spirit so we can have miracles that Jessica described. I haven't you know, been to a service like that for a long time, but that would enhance our status because we're more spiritual than all these ordinary people. No, the point is to be in Christ. And so everyone who's in Christ, it really doesn't matter what you're role in this world is. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 7, in that section. Now, of course, if your role had been being a drug dealer, you'd have to quit that one. But he talks about being a slave, whether you're male, female, slave-free, circumcision, uncircumcision. Now your new status is glorious, and you have got one major upgrade that already happened. Better than getting an advanced degree. Better than getting a great promotion. Better than winning the lottery. Better than having so much talent, you're the best baseball player. Better than uh, being known by internationally amongst the Hollywood elite. But now you're a child of the king. And it's sad to me that the songs that were written in that genre um, have became mocked of stupid, trite, shallow or whatever, as if being a child of the king is a waste of time when you could be some great glorious apostle or something. And uh, so the genealogies would be there to prove you're important based on... uh, natural lineage. Now we can really do the genealogies because they have genetics and you can send in a sample and find out. Is there, what was it? Chromosome? What was it? Uh, 23? Our son did that because he's, he's got a business in Florida. He said, well, I found out I'm European of every sort. But it really doesn't matter if you know the Lord. 
So you, you can't gain spiritual status because uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards was your great-great-grandfather or something. All that proves is that you were born a sinner. Um, which give rise to mere speculation. Now, why is speculation called mere speculation? Speculations, zetasis, um, is also used in Titus 3.9. Someone look up Titus 3.9. And uh, then the next thing, speculations and... Uh, uh, mere speculation must be translating two words. There's two in the Greek. Zetasis and logomachia, word fights. Speculations and word fights in the Greek. Do you have it, Eric? I do. Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. <laughs> unprofitable and worthless. The, I, had the, I printed a Greek out for this Timothy, and it, literally there's two things here, cetasis and logomachia, which is a logos word, machia would be a fight, word fights. Um, which be, uh, what do they produce? Um, speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Looking at that here. Uh, and what comes from these speculations? Envy, strife, insults, conjectures, evils. Oh, I'm in 1 Timothy 6. Let me go to 1 Timothy 3. I'm in 6. I got ahead of myself. 1 Timothy 3. Here's the one I was looking at. Let's just go to the right one. Uh, conceited, understand nothing. He has morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words. There's the one we we're talking about. The other one was a good thing to know, too. 1 Timothy 6 3 would be. Speculation rather than further, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction I covered before is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. Let's finish with that and then go to the one we were talking about. Um, what is the goal of our instruction? A pure heart. What's a pure heart? One that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. One, that God's at work purifying motives. Bad motives are, are, are always lurking there, and I don't think they totally go away until the resurrection. Okay? But the pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith are things that can only come from Christ. So the goal of teaching is not muthos, genealogies, stories, popularity, growth of influence, status. It's pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. So if you're a teacher, a parent, teaching children, 
an elder, pastor, anyone, the whole body of Christ. We're, we teach one another. What we look to see happen is a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. And only God can do that. If what is being promoted creates the other, the, the Ms., I'm greater than you, I'm better than you, I know something you don't know, and so on. Um, it's not from God. Dr. Yarborough says in the Hellenistic world of Paul's time, so-called myths were understood as fables or far-fetched tales, often involving the gods. The New Testament uses the word, uh, cast them as falsehoods, not only because they are untrue, but because of their pernicious effects promoting immoral behavior and in some cases extreme asceticism in others. In other words, withdrawing from the world, being pious. Now, the, the words I was actually looking at here. Sorry, I misled you. No, no, sorry. Uh, Bob, can you just go back one? Yeah. Uh, back the, what's interesting, I remember teaching on this in that verse 5, notice love comes first and then faith and um, for, for Paul, love, of course, is the goal, but it's almost bracketed, the pure heart and the conscience. And the, the good conscience there in 1 Timothy 5 is juxtaposed to the seared conscience when you get to 1 Timothy 4. Those who teach the doctrines of demons, it says in 1 Timothy 4, it says, uh, through the insincerity of liars who consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. So the false teacher their conscience doesn't function correctly. The conscience is the inner referee that determines right or wrong, but it's not infallible. It has to be informed by something outside of itself. So the false teacher, their conscience is informed by their heterodidoskalos, their other doctrine. So therefore, they think incorrectly, therefore they act incorrectly, and they end up forbidding marriage and they do all this error. But if you come to the doctrines of Christ through the apostles, now your conscience is informed as the inner referee by the scriptures. Right. Now you think correctly, and therefore you act correctly. Therefore, you have love and faith. Amen. And if you look at, as an illustration, we're here in America, and I have friends elsewhere, and they warn me, don't just think that America is the only place that matters in the world because we have friends around the world and they sometimes tire of hearing about America is the only thing that matters, like we're the center of the spiritual universe. But in our culture, and I assume this worldwide, the, the seared conscience is now paraded as virtue. Okay? The more wicked and perverse something is, the more virtuous people claim to be for promoting it. And Christians are grieved because we think, how could you get to the point where you think this sort of objective evil could ever be the ground for starting a church or starting a movement or creating a, a policy for the, for the populace? And it's almost as if the ancient Roman Empire reappeared. This is what they did in Paul's day, yes. Yeah, yesterday I was watching um, professional golf, the PGA tournament, and Jim Nance gets on, and 
we celebrate gay pride. We celebrate pride. Um, and I'm like, I can't even watch professional golf. I can't even watch golf without them celebrating sexual perversion. And it's getting to the point where sexual perversion is the new righteousness of the world. It is so frightening when you consider the ramifications of what's going on right now. All the more reason we need to teach the pure word of God. Remember what it said? And such were some of you, but you have been sanctified. Okay? There's a lot of different sins we had, but God sanctifies sinners. It makes us right before him. If we turn to Christ. Okay? Let's go. I got to at least introduce this. Somebody keep my feet to the fire. I'm going to, Christy, make sure I start with this slide. The, the other ones have to go away. My fault for, well, I'm glad we went back over, but we got to start right here. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understand nothing. Pride is behind this. Whether it's obvious or not, that's what's behind it. He's conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid, morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes. That was the Greek I was looking up earlier and had I was on the wrong slide when I was doing it. Controversial questions, disputes about words, there's your logos, machia, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of deprived mind, deprived of, depraved mind, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, this we will unpack next week. This is very, very important. It still happens. It still goes on. It's still exactly what happens. One of the things you'll find about is the heterodidoskalos, the heterodoxy, and the pride and morbid, controversial uh, curiosity about things is the end result. The end result is I know something you don't know and the only way you'll ever know it is if you come and learn it from me. And whatever else may be going on. I ran into that you know, decades ago with the KJV only controversy. And it was all based on conspiracy theories. So work and work and work and work and refute it, doing research that nobody would spend the time to do, but I did it. I was at the seminary, and they say, well, here, read this book. And then technology comes along, the thing comes back up again. Here, watch this DVD. The DVD is saying, all the, now the, your, your Greek Bible's no good. Your Greek Bible's no good. Your English translation's no good. This one's no good. That one's no good. You got a defective Bible. You can't trust anything unless you come, and what do you end up with? Suspicions, constant friction. You're forced to read a Bible you can't understand. You can't correct. I never 
successfully corrected somebody promoting that. I spent hours and hours and hours, and you refute every point they make, and they come up with a different one, because they're stuck in this false teaching, and they want you to not trust your Bible. They make that clear. So one guy recently came by, I, a few years ago, sent me DVDs. I said, no, no, no. Well, which version of Greek you use? I said, Nesselalon 27. Well, I figured it would be USB. Well, so then that would have been even worse. It has to be uh, Texas Receptus. Now, do the folks that promote this know anything about manuscripts? And did they ever study the Greek language themselves? Did they ever study... Uh, how one decides on readings. Do they are able to read technical commentaries with critical apparatus so that you can, if you have to know, you can find out which reading is in which version and see people discuss which one has the most going for it, which is what I've done for years. They don't do any of that. They just give you a DVD and when you don't listen to it, say, well, you're a defective Christian. I won't go to your church. Costs nothing. Costs them not one cent. Just leave, boom. Sit in your little ghetto with nobody else that you'll go to church with and controversial questions, disputes about words which arise envy, yep, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. Go away. You got the wrong Bible. What did you say this guy we knew from the radio station saw somewhere in Tennessee, Eric? Steve, was it Steve Solomon? Was that his yeah. name? There was a guy who did the KKMS radio program, yeah. the after nine, the afternoon drive, and he was from Tennessee, and he knew that the King James Version only movement was so big that there were people who would drive around in Tennessee that had cars that were painted as if it was a business, KGV or hell, basically threatening everyone who wasn't KGV only. So it's big business to be... A heretic. In well, Tennessee. here's my Holman Christian standard Bible, so that's the route to hell. Right, that's the route to hell. I wonder why it's telling me to repent and believe in Christ and trust Him. Yeah. Dear ones, don't let that happen to you. Okay, don't let it happen to you. If somebody has something that you can't get other than from that person and people directly related to that person, it doesn't work. One more thing I saw. I, I've been... I think, Elder, I sent you that thing from the Philippines for this person's watch, reading some of the material, including the, uh, that guy passed away, that, uh, Les Feldig, the teaching that the teachings of Jesus aren't for the church. That would fall in this category. Okay, teaching of Jesus aren't for the church. And the most extreme version of it says only the prison epistles are for the church because they reject 1 Corinthians and, and, and other ones. Now, I was reading this this last week, and I looked at this one line here. If anyone advocates a different doctrine... Now, this is a prison epistle to Timothy. Even the most extreme uh, hyper-dispensationalists of Bullinger... Is it Bullinger? And then 
Uh, it's a guy named Scam. Well, it'd come to the Philippines and somebody's getting help from us to get out of that. But look at this. With some words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prison epistle, and it's written saying that they should agree with the, word, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Les Feldig, no disrespect meant since he just passed away, is saying, you don't listen. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ were for some Jewish church that never actually was installed. It didn't happen because they rejected the kingdom. So why is Paul telling us to listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hyper-dispensationalists who won't listen to anybody but their own selves saying, you don't have to listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ because they were for the Jews. The Jews rejected the kingdom. It was never instituted, so therefore they never are binding on anybody. And what's their proof? Well, if you're going to say that, then you have to. Then they list things Jesus said and are assuming we see those things as too stringent we can't do them. And so, um, dear, dear ones, someone said, Be, beware of kindly old gentlemen. <laughs> I, I'm old. The other two, we'll see. <laughs> but whether old or young, kindly or not so kind, dear ones, these things don't add up. How come Paul is telling us that the teachings have to agree the words of the Lord Jesus and that he cites ones that aren't in the Gospels like in Acts 20.35. We'll get to that soon. Uh, it doesn't add up. But people send their money. They slavishly watch the videos, watch the TV shows, buy the books. Yes, yes, yes. But you don't have to listen to the words of Jesus because they're for somebody else. Don't let it happen. Don't be taken captive. Don't be harmed. Don't lose your joy. Don't lose your fellowship of one another. And if we have a valid, what is it, sincere faith, um, a heart of love, conscience that is active but cleansed by the blood, we will not be offended if a fellow brother or sister comes and corrects us. And if they have better evidence for their reading, we'll be glad that we learned something. We instruct one another as we search the scriptures together. And somebody says, well, you listen to me or go away. They do not have it. So next week, we'll start right here. And I'm going to delete those other two slides so I can't get confused again. <laughs> and then here you'll see uh, I found a, a new commentary that's, I think, an excellent reading. This fivefold collection of calamities. We, we do not want these. We'll, we'll dig through that next week. So we'll get a little more into this. Thank you, by the way, for allowing us to do this because this is groundwork for helping to find a church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness, for your word. We pray for those that we know who have already been taken captive by things. Pray that the light would break through so they would get away from teachings that are harming them. Help us to humbly listen to one another and search the scriptures together. Pray for Pastor Eric as he teaches us 
today from Matthew. Uh, be with him and help us to listen and to search the scriptures together. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.